0: What's up, patrons? We are here with another installment of our read-through of Christopher Lash's The True and Only Heaven. I'm here with John. What's up, John? Yo, how's it going? It's good. It's good to have you back on the last train.
1: And at last.
0: (laughs) Reopened at last, yeah. (laughs) It was cool to have Mike here for the nostalgia one.
1: I love listening to that.
0: Yeah, that one was a lot of fun. But yeah, I'm glad that we're both back doing this because we are doing... The Populist Campaign Against Improvement, this insanely based chapter that comes off of the sociological tradition and the idea of community, right? So,
1: yeah, it, my like biggest, I guess, impression of reading this one was that in hindsight, having read it, it does make total sense that the things that have happened in the 19th century would not be easily would not be like assimilated into either a like liberal progressive or communist progressive mode of historiography without some and often much violence yeah (laughs) to the actual events and people themselves and like perhaps a great deal of misunderstanding or like tendentious reading to understand why they so deeply failed to like appear as they were supposed to appear. yep if that if that's maybe a good way of putting yeah, it yeah,
0: well, I'd also say that he wants to take a look at some of what happens in the late 18th century as well
1: right, right right
0: you know and he wants to you know again, this is about you know what do we do with this idea of progress? He sort of does a recapitulation. <laughs> Ow. Wow. That was a brutal sneeze. going to be <laughs> editing that out. So he wants to talk about, it says, as the 20th century draws to a close, we find it more and more difficult to mount a compelling defense of the idea of progress, but we find it equally difficult to imagine life without it. Right. And this, he sort of talks about the apocalyptic imagination that Sontag writes about in her book on the AIDS crisis. And Lash writes horrifying images of the future, even when they are invoked, not just to titillate a perverse and jaded taste, but to shock people into constructive action, Foster a curious state of mind that simultaneously believes and refuses to believe in the likelihood of some terminal catastrophe for the human race. Further down, it is the assumption that our future is predetermined by the continuing development of large-scale production, colossal technologies, and political centralization that inhibits creative thought and make it so difficult to avoid the choice between fatuous optimism and debilitating nostalgia.
1: Right. Which is... Such a beautifully written introduction to what would follow. Because then you get to read about, I think, the fact that there were maybe a lot of people who didn't experience the world in those terms and they had a political sort of position loosely.
0: Right, exactly. So, what he's going to do now is he's basically going to take a look at the moderns, right? And he's going to take a look at civic humanism uh, or republicanism. Right. These things can kind of be used interchangeably, though he does some important, I don't want to say hair splitting, but distinction making between them. And so he's going to look at guys like Machiavelli, the Renaissance, and stuff like that. He's already dropped Machiavelli references earlier, if you go back and listen to our first or second episode in this. And in very much the same way that Alasdair MacIntyre wants to talk about Machiavelli,
1: it's so difficult to remember in which book you read something. Sometimes,
0: <laughs> yeah. And they, Machiavelli left room for fortune. He was not this modern optimist. What sets him apart from the ancients is that I think this is the sort of Straussian argument that I think holds in terms of the Machiavellian moment, as Machiavelli does not necessarily think politics is all about aiming for human excellence and the highest good. He has other concerns about ambition and the durability of a state that intervene over and above the pursuit of a political virtue ethics, right? So there's that distinction. And the other one is that he tends to think that the agent's How should I say this? I was actually just listening to an interesting lecture, brief lecture by Michael Anton over at the Claremont Institute in a series they did on Thursday about the ancients and the moderns. And Anton made a very convincing case that Machiavelli did not necessarily believe in the constraints of nature to the extent that the ancients did. There might be interesting historical reasons for that, but that is a feature of his thought. So where does that leave us with why Lash wants to bring him up? Well, Lash wants to bring him up to sort of do a revision of how we've come by the terms civic humanism and republicanism. And he wants to do that because he is watching a sort of return with a V to so-called republicanism by people both left and right as a response to the sort of moral poverty and Like millenarian stagnation of life in the end of history. Right.
1: Like cosmopolitan, liberal culture. Yes. High high art, international sort of stuff like that.
0: International art, English. Yeah. And all sorts of other stuff. Yeah. Um, Like
1: uh, French stuff, often too, I would say. It's interesting because he deals a lot in the Anglosphere. But I'm able to like slightly connect it to things that I'm dimly aware of going on maybe. I mean, for talking 18th century, then London was still definitely like the city, I think, like even more than Paris in a big way. But you're getting, as these city cultures develop, like big reactions to them, which leads to stuff like Herder and all that kind of thing continentally. And in much the same way, you get interesting, like more English or American reactions to this politically, not just aesthetically or culturally.
0: Right. And that's sort of what's interesting, right? So I'll just make a brief aside here, and then I'll go into what Lash is seeing happen on the left and the right in the 90s. When he writes this, it can't be overemphasized enough the way in which the World War II communist émigré from Germany and the post 68 sorbonne professorship class have impacted the american humanities. Right. What is fascinating about and I'm not saying that like pejoratively, right? I'm saying that observationally because obviously there are many thinkers in the both of those sets that are worth spending an incredible amount of time reading right? You could do far worse than reading Minimum Moralia, right? <laughs> or Discipline and Punish, right? you know, Or even of Grammatology. I'm not necessarily a Derrida fan, but worth spending time with. Okay. So why do I bring that up? Because what's interesting is as philosophy generally skewed toward analytic, literature departments picked up Continental philosophy and history departments picked up variations on Marxism and progressivism, right? What's interesting is how few of any of these departments, except for perhaps the sort of utilitarianism that comes out of analytic philosophy, engage with many of the half forgotten thinkers that were important for the Anglosphere that Lash brings up in this chapter, right? Like Thomas Paine should be somebody we consult very often, right? It's usually only conservatives that are interested in reading the founding fathers in an almost philosophical light. I don't think that task should be left just to them, you know?
1: I think Payne's a little bit famous with leftists or like anarchists, but he's like the lone exception amongst the mass of- And as I learned
0: from Lash, like sort of like wildly misunderstood and sort of press ganged into contemporary political grudges as so many things are, Mm -hmm. Um, I'm sure I'm guilty of a little bit of that sometimes myself. Okay. So I just wanted to bring that up to say like what the add value is here and what I think is going to be important about what John and I will talk about because he and I both learned a lot about American and British historical thinking about republicanism and freedom through the course of this chapter. Okay so on the right republicanism means lash rights the pledge of allegiance respect for authority and religion and the replacement of the welfare state by private agencies that would appeal to the spirit of voluntary cooperation instead of making everyone dependent on the state for people on the left revival of citizenship seems to require not merely political but economic decentralization after criticizing Liz- liberalism, Sandel, the guy on the left, goes on to criticize contemporary conservatism as well. Conservative politics, Sandell writes, cannot answer the aspiration for community because they ignore the corrosive effects of capitalism itself, the unrestricted mobility of capital with its disruptive effects on neighborhoods, cities, and towns, the concentration of power in large corporations unaccountable to communities they serve, and an inflexible workplace that forces working men and women to choose between advancing their careers and caring for their children. Okay. So like nothing's changed.
1: Yeah. Although, you know, he's teeing himself up there so well.
0: Yeah. While also doing a very sympathetic job of relaying to us what these people believe. It is, (laughs) it is like just unbelievable. (laughs) How good he is at that.
1: Yeah. It kind of begs the question then, well, did anyone ever oppose those things? Was there ever something? I don't know. Probably not. (laughs) Anyway, let's move on.
0: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. He says, such statements tell us less about the concept of virtue than about the fear of of social fragmentation, competitive individualism, and self-seeking that underlies attempts to revive it, right? So he's sort of talking about He lumps McIntyre, I think, wrongly in with these guys, but I'll forgive it of Mm. this return to the virtue that happens both left and right, you know, as sort of a corrective to the things he's listed here as problems. Okay. So then the next thing he has to do is talk about what is this civic tradition after all and how have we talked about it? And that's what he wants to look at, right? He wants to look at how people have interpreted republicanism and he wants to, and they say that it's this like continuous tradition. Lash is skeptical of that argument, right? And they might say share similar themes. He's eventually going to sort of settle on a type of republicanism that is best, I think, showcased by the overlap between Cobbett and Thomas Paine, right? And we'll get to who, who those guys are soon. But I thought that this was a profoundly interesting... Uh, chapter, because he wants to say that what people are calling virtue, or Republican virtue now, is this sort of self-sacrificing communal spirit. And he's like, yeah, no, many of the original Republicans did not care about that.
1: There is like, yeah, I mean, if you have that quote, it's worth reading. The one I oh, think that oh, we looked at earlier.
0: Oh, the one that I texted you guys? Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's, the one that I kept
0: rereading to feel my Thumos level spike because it was <laughs> so based
1: and cool. It was interesting because it places, I think, the idea of republicanism so much more on its own terms that are not vague and like meaningless, which is kind of how you often encounter Like what you were saying. Like, well, it's about like a communal sort of sacrifice kind of thing or whatever.
0: Right. It's sort of like Benedictine Rousseau or something like that.
1: Yeah. Whereas what you showed me was like pretty forceful and like had an identity to it and it left me thinking like, that's both interesting and I have to like, think a lot about it now.
0: Yeah. So I'll read that. Yeah. I'll I'll read that paragraph now. Right. Um, Okay. For Republicans. Virtue implied the fullest development of human capacities and powers. They condemned a life devoted to the pursuit of wealth and private comforts, not because it was selfish, but because it provided insufficient scope for the ambition to excel. The contrast between selfishness and altruism so prominent in recent communitarianism played little part in the civic tradition. Even a selfless, quote unquote, devotion to politics, warfare, or some other practice was seen to bring glory and renown, not to be sure as its reward, since excellence was its own reward, but as its necessary and appropriate accompaniment and validation. Republicanism condemned self-seeking when it tempted men to value the external rewards of excellence more highly than the thing itself or to bend the rules governing a given practice to their own immediate advantage. Self-seeking was objectionable because it led men to demand less of themselves than they were capable of achieving. And only incidentally, because in measuring themselves against false standards, they also injured others. I'm sorry. That last sentence is just so cool, man. I was like, (laughs) damn, I believe that though.